Welcome back to the Washed Up Journalists podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation, a leader in the private publishing industry. Legacy Preservation. We write history, yours. For more information, visit LegacyPreservation.com. Our guest today on Washed Up Journalists is Chris Mundy, who's best known for his work as a writer and executive producer on popular television shows such as Criminal Minds, Low Winter Sun, Hell on Wheels, and most recently, Ozark. Previously, Mundy wrote for other television shows, including Chicago Hope, where he started in television after moving from New York to California in 1999, and Cold Case. For Mundy, there was a time before television. He was a fiction writing major in college and quickly transitioned into magazine writing upon entering the workforce. He spent more than a decade as a senior writer and contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, authoring, among other things, countless celebrity profiles. So without further ado, here's my interview with Chris Mundy. I know you were a pretty good athlete as a student. Did you happen to catch the the Last Dance documentary on the Chicago Bulls last the last few weeks? It's been it, it's getting me through quarantine. Yes, I'm so sad that it's over all of a sudden. But um, and I made both my daughters watch it with me. I uh, I watched every second of it. Yeah, I, so I, I loved like I grew up in Kansas and we had WGN and TBS. So I fell in love with the Bulls, the Cubs, the Braves. And so I was just like reliving a lot of my youth. But my question for you, during that time that you lived in New York, did you become a Knicks fan or or what? I was a huge Knicks fan. I'm still a Knicks fan, sad as that is. It just, we have, it's been a sad 20 years or so. Um, yeah. And so I hated those Bulls teams. I hated, hated, hated those Bulls teams. And even got to go to a couple of the, uh, a couple of games, uh, Nick Bulls uh, playoff games. And it was, and it just felt unfair because I felt like the Knicks were a better team. They just happened to have the best player in the world who would then would do something miraculous and win the game. Um, and so th- it brought back all sorts of memories when they got into the Knicks stuff. But um, it was it was easier to watch it now with some distance and appreciate the Bulls for how good they were. Yeah, you're right. That those Knicks teams were really, really good. It's just that the Bulls had the ultimate trump card with MJ in the fourth quarter. It's like he's gonna, you know, somehow find a way to win the game. It was all role players, and and the Knicks were like so solid, and they they were so tough, and they just could not get past them. They could not get past them. I know the Pacers feel the same way, in that in that period, but um, but oh, it was so frustrating. And then uh, and then the you know the year Michael went to play uh, baseball, the Knicks finally make it to the finals and uh, and blow the series against the Rockets. So <laughs> it's even more heartbreaking. The thing I remember about that final series with the Rockets, in fact, it's a neat moment in journalism, was that was when the O.J. Simpson Bronco chase was happening. And I remember they like cut into the game a couple times to like show the the white Ford Bronco, you know, on the freeway in L.A. And I'm like, get back to the game. I want to watch basketball. It's so funny. I watched that game. I was in London doing a story for Rolling Stone. And so the game was on way, way later. But uh, um, a good friend of mine from college was living, who lived in New York, but was living in New, uh, in London at the time, was there, and we went to his law firm to watch the to watch the game. But it started at like 
midnight, maybe one in the morning. And so uh, I, I had to watch that that whole game. But the good news is because it was the international feed, we didn't get any of the Bronco chase. So we got we got we got to watch the whole thing. But then I was like terribly, terribly tired the next day when I was supposed to be doing my journalism work. That's funny. Yeah, that Bronco chase. And then then that whole thing just like captivated the country for basically the next calendar year, you know, yeah. it was um, so yeah, this this TV writing gig of yours, from what I understand, it came about rather quickly. You you and your wife basically moved to California so she could attend law school, and you had been writing at Rolling Stone for more than a decade. And essentially, again, from what I understand, you kind of taught yourself how to write a TV script. Is that? I mean, was it really that simple? It's it, it's kind of that simple. Um, my wife really deserves the credit for it because so she had been a magazine writer too. We actually met at Rolling Stone. Um, and then when she left there, she, uh, went over to entertainment weekly for a bit and did some stuff, then, uh, some freelance stuff at Vogue. But, um, but yeah, she, she went to law school and she went up to, she went to Stanford. So suddenly it was like, oh, we're leaving New York. We didn't expect to, but the good news is I was on contract at the magazine at that point. So I owed a certain amount of stories a year and that was just that. So, but we moved to Palo Alto and it was our first year of marriage, her first year of law school, which is just total deprivation. So even though I was doing a lot of stories for Rolling Stone, I was just kind of adrift from having moved from the East Village of New York to a very sleepy Palo Alto at the time. And um, so she, my contract was coming up at the magazine. And thank God they were uh, really dragging their feet. They, they basically were saying, we'll just keep paying you under the old terms like while we figure it out. And, um, and really late in the year, She'd suggested trying to work, write for TV and that I might like it. And I was a fiction writing major in college. But I was like, we're in Northern California. We're not in Southern California. And really late in the year, she said, you know, I bet I could do a visiting semester in Los Angeles if you took a job down there. I'd never written a TV script before. I got a bunch of samples of them just to sort of know the form. I wrote one in four days that I mailed off to the only person in LA that I knew was in the entertainment industry. He passed it on to two agents. I signed with an agent. Um, and then I wrote another one in two weeks because they told me I needed another one. And like, I don't know, a month later, I had a job. It was kind of crazy. And and not only that, I I, uh, I wrote a comedy and a drama. I didn't know that you were supposed to choose one path or the other. And uh, so I was up for jobs. I've actually, there was, I was up for a job that these guys that uh, had run Seinfeld at the end had a show coming on. And I was told I was probably going to get the job if it went, and it didn't. And um, I very well might have taken that instead of the the drama job that I took. So, um, but it was all so dizzying. I, I've, I've said it before, but it's really true that like I was my ignorance was actually helpful. If I'd known how hard it should have been, I would have like made a year long plan instead of just kind of like winging it and doing it. But um, all of a sudden, we'd already gotten a sublet back in New York for the summer, and. I got a call on a Friday that I got the job at Chicago Hope. On Sunday, I flew with our dog from New York to San Francisco, immediately got in a cab with the dog down to Palo Alto, got in my parents' old Jeep at that exact moment that was in our driveway there, drove to Los Angeles, checked into a hotel with the dog, and had started work at 9.30 the next morning. And that was just that. Then I had to find a place to live and I found it, but we were already running a place we couldn't afford in Palo Alto. So I found this terrible apartment near, uh, near where, near the Fox lot where, where we shot the show. 
and bought a couch at a garage sale that I slept on and was my only piece of furniture. And that was just, that was it. That's how I got into TV writing. So you really truly were thrown into, you threw yourself into the deep end and it was like a hundred miles an hour right out of the gate. It was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. Um, yeah. And I ended up, I wrote two cover stories for Rolling Stone while I was on that first job at Chicago Hope. Cause I still, I, I didn't owe them technically cause my contract was up, but I, I owed them, you know, in terms of, I mean, that'd been my home for so long and I knew everybody and loved everybody. So I wasn't going to let them down. Well, let's, let's talk about that time at Rolling Stone. From what I uh, understand, you were there just a little over a decade and you're someone who's really good at like with your words, setting a scene. And so I wondered if you could take me there, describe what that environment was like at that time. This is basically the 1990s, right? Just kind of take me back there and describe that environment and, and where you fit into the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I was there from like 88 to 99, sort of late 99, um, all, somewhere between 11 and 12 years, all told. Um, yeah, it was it was funny that, you know, you, you do your interview there and I started out as an assistant and they they tell you that they want a two year commitment and there's no chance to write. And you've got to pretend like you know, to say like, oh, that's great. But like everyone wants a chance to write. And um, at the time, I got really lucky. There was somebody uh, we, we had we were in the old offices when I first got there for the first two years, we were in these um, offices on Fifth Avenue between 57th and 58 that kind of overlooked Central Park and the plaza. And we had four floors just for Rolling Stone. So there were two floors of editorial and two floors of business. Um, whereas when we moved two years later, we had only one floor and it was Rolling Stone, Men's Journal and Us Magazine all at once. So it, when we first got there, it was just this kind of like scrappy little group of writers and editors that were all thrown together in the same in the same spot. It's funny, there was sort of a I call it a generation, but there was only they're only five or six years older than me. That mo most of the uh, senior writers and editors were, so they were all in their very late twenties, and uh, but they seemed they were all so impressive and cool, and everybody was out every single night, and 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 I got I got writing really quickly, luckily, because um, one of those one of those writers was doing something on college radio, which is sort of a new ish phenomenon then, and didn't know who they they should cover. And uh, and asked me who we sh who they should cover, and I was like, okay, well, you need to do Dinosaur Junior, and you need to do the Pixies, and you need to do Soundgarden. And you do so I, d I just sort of named all the bands that they should they should be writing about. Um, and because of that, she's just said, well, why don't you write half of them? And so, like two months in to my supposedly having to take two years, I got I, I got some writing in the magazine, and uh, and it kind of went from there. I. Uh, I started getting a bunch of pieces and then at the two year mark, there's a column in the front of the book called random notes um, that they hand, I started, I'd started helping out on that and they handed that over to me. So I, I started getting two pages of stuff. I mean, it was small, like smaller stuff, but um, so I, I got, I got lucky, but it was, it, it was very intimate at first that, that those first two years um, just because we were in such tight quarters. So you grew up, it sounds like, with a with a love of music that kind of carried on through your college days. So in your earliest days at Rolling Stone, did you hang your hat more on your writing chops or your music chops, or was it kind of a combination of both? Like, did your writing have to kind of grow to match the like the caliber of your uh, call it your personal devotion to music? 
It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, probably a little bit. I, I mean, I'm a huge music fan. It's still my favorite art form of any by far, and the mo- one that's most immediate and emotional to me. But um, I didn't mean to get to write about music. I mean, it was an amazing, happy accident. I just wanted anybody to pay me to write anything. Do you know what I mean? So I just moved to New York knowing that that's where magazines were. And so hopefully someone writing about something would let, would let me try. Um, so, th- so I was just lucky that there were the two. Um, the fact that I could really talk music helped a ton. Um, my original boss, strangely enough, was the te- was the television uh, editor, but uh, she was really supportive and, and helpful. But all all the music people sort of knew that I would pretty quickly when you talk with people, you, they either know it or you don't. So, um, so I think that helped give me a little bit of street cred, as it were. And then. Um, and then from there, I'd, yeah, I mean, all your writing from the beginning, I'm sure you feel it. It's like you go think back on the things you wrote at first and you probably don't want to read them today. So it, 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 you've got to learn. I think, the, I think the more you go, the simpler your writing gets. And so I, I, I think I probably stopped trying so hard a little, uh, a little ways in. Yeah, no, I agree with that. In fact, even uh, like on the same draft of something like from draft one or version one to version three, I feel like... it gets better the more you simplify it and boil it down. Sometimes you start with kind of lofty aspirations and realize that it just clouds things and you're better just, you know, what's the essential elements of of what I'm writing and let that kind of carry the day. Totally. Yeah, it's exactly right. So, so when you, so we'll get to your transition uh, out of magazines a little later, but when you think of yourself today, do you think of yourself as a, like a journalist at heart who's just displaced in the television industry or, or do you more so think of yourself just generally as a writer who's now doing his writing in a different medium than, than he started? I think that's it. For a long time, I thought of myself as, as a journalist who happened to be doing TV. Um, now I've been doing this so long and you know, you sort of accidentally accrue skills over time. Next thing you know, it's like, Oh, I know how to be in an editing room pretty well. And it's like, Oh, I can, talk to actors on set and help make something better, hopefully. So, so I definitely feel that I'm, that this is my career now, but I mostly feel like I've always thought that if, if I retire or when I die, if I've only made my money through writing in whatever capacity, then I've completely gotten away with something. (laughs) I know that feeling. And it's really true. I mean, it's really true. So whatever it is, you know, and and if I turn around in five years and say like, you know, what I really want to do is, you know, do long form journalism for a little while or try to write a, you know, nonfiction book or a novel or whatever, that would seem totally natural to me, even though I happen to be doing the TV job right now. In terms of, so let's get back to, you're, you're at Rolling Stone, you're, you're cranking out stories. Um, it's kind of a two-part question. How many stories were you typically working on at a time? And uh, how long um, did you spend on a story? Was it weeks? Was it months? Was it, was it ever years? It's never years. I did, I did mostly profiles. Um, I only did a couple longer investigative things that were, was, that was months. But, um, but usually if it's a cover, that would be the only thing you're doing at the time. Do you know what I mean? So it would, uh, and it would usually be like, say, if it was a band, you'd usually go out on the road and you'd be doing research. Then you'd be out on the road with somebody for four days to a week. And then you'd come back and 
hopefully have a couple weeks to write it. I've had a couple times where I had to turn a cover in around over a long weekend. Um, but uh, so usually you were doing something for very intense, you know, three, three week bursts. If you were doing smaller stuff, um, then you might be doing two or three stories at a time. Um, but, but, but the bigger stuff that I started getting lucky enough to get to do with it, it'd usually be the only thing. And then when, when you're out and you're, you're spending time with a person or a, a band or, or whoever gathering material for a cover story, um, did you typically spend more time uh, kind of one-on-one or four-on-one or whatever the numbers were? Did you spend more time with the subject of who you were writing about or more time with kind of the people on the fringe of who that person was, maybe their publicist or their manager or their friends and confidants? How did you go about gathering um, kind of the extra layers to what you were writing about? Again, um, I did almost entirely with the subject. Um you just kind of get swept up in the uh, in whatever scene you're entering. So I always just tried to you just needed to be able to hang. You know what I mean? You like very clearly. But it's funny because there's a couple different schools of thought. I've got a friend named Chris Heath, who's one of the best journalists that I know at this kind of stuff, who now works for GQ. Back in the day, he worked at Details and then Rolling Stone, um, and he's and and then a bunch of he's he's from London. He's he's British. So he also worked for like Melody Maker and all those kind of things. But Chris will come in with a big pad of paper and be writing down notes at every second about everything. He makes people very conscious at all times that they're, they're, a piece is being done about them. Obviously, when you sit down and you're going to do an interview, you're recording it and all that. But, but every moment, he wanted to make them realize that, what, that it was being recorded. And his theory was eventually people are almost – they accept it so much they're trying to like – do something or say something that gets onto that pad of paper. Um, my theory was sort of the opposite, which was I want to come into this situation, integrate so seamlessly that um, everyone's just being everyone's just being themselves, and I, it's kind of like I I was always here, and they don't even think anything of it. Uh, and then you know, then I would be sort of writing all sorts of notes to myself because you're trying to like. You're, you're trying to remember the scenes. You're gonna. It's not just the quotes they're saying. It's 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 what things are you noticing about them? What what scenes are playing out? They're gonna be able to show this person or people inside out. So um, there's definitely different schools of thought. But for me, I just um, I just dove in and tried to be swimming at the same speed that everybody else was all the time. Do you have a like a story about the first time you ever got uh, kind of knocked off your spot by a by a group or a celebrity that just uh, almost made you feel insignificant in the grand scheme of like their aura? Um, no, I mean I had people that were like real jerks, um, so I wouldn't as much be the aura. Like I, I had, uh, I, I never really got that nervous about meeting people, and like, and I, and I got to interview a bunch of people that were, I spent three days with Paul McCartney and just, just me, him, his first wife, Linda, and one of his daughters for like three days when he played these pubs in London. Um, and I got to interview Bob Dylan, who's a huge hero and Paul Westerberg for the replacements for who's a huge hero of mine. But, um, but it was always just felt like an amazing opportunity for work. Do you know what I mean? It never, um, but, but you'd get, you'd get knocked off in terms of like, 
people just being terrible to you. Like I interviewed the band Oasis for a cover and I was over in London with them. And uh, it was the time they, we, I went to the Brit Awards, which are basically the British equivalent of the Grammys with them the year they swept everything. And, and then they were also making a video for one of their songs that I was, and so I was around for that too. And they just went to great lengths to be as obnoxious as possible and to tell me as often as possible that I was actually not welcome. I mean, like the lead singer Liam would come in, there'd be like six of us sitting there and he'd, he'd go like, do you want to go to the pub? Do you want to go to the pub? Do you want to go to the pub? Look at me, not say a word, then go on to the next person going, do you want to go to the pub? Like, it was just constantly like, we don't like you, you're an outsider and we're going to prove it. But, um, you know, one good thing about journalism is you get to, you get the final portrayal. Yeah, you get the the, the pen gives you the last word. I I, sp- I suppose then in your TV experience now, um, that sort of kind of uh, like you came into TV hardened a bit. So maybe if you're having to discuss uh, like a critical moment or a scene in a script you're writing with, you know, Laura Linney, Jason Bateman, whoever, you're not necessarily in awe of them because you've been doing this for decades, dealing with people that have. Um, again, that could potentially be a jerk to you. So you're more about, okay, I got to do my job to make sure they know what they need to do their job. Yeah. I never really, I mean, in, in, I think the journalism probably really helped. I think I was to whatever degree I was good at that job. I think it helped that I really didn't particularly care. Like, like that most of the famous people I met or pretty much all of them, I always was just like, oh, they're perfectly nice, but my, my friends are funnier. My friends are smarter. My friends are whatever. Do you know what I mean? I didn't really for whatever reason, I just never really cared. And I, I think it was helpful to me. And, uh, and so, yeah, by the time I got into, uh, doing TV, it's like, it's just, it's just a job. It's just, and, 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 and I really appreciate people who are good at their jobs, actors who are good at their jobs. Cause there is a big difference between people that are good and bad. And, uh, like, you know, you mentioned Laura and Jason. I mean, that's a perfect example. It's like, if they weren't so great, you know, our show would not be what it is at all. I mean, they, they make, they make you look good constantly about how good they are. Uh, so today you write with, um, or you at least collaborate with a team of writers that from my understanding, essentially kind of report to you. How is that environment different? And I'm talking just the writing environment itself. How is that different from what your typical writing environment was uh, with Rolling Stone when you're on deadline for a cover story? You know, do, do you work at the same place all the time? Do you have to be a little more flexible now with more people in the room? How is that different? Um, the, the big difference is they're, they're very similar in a lot of ways. It's, 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 um, there's kind of a one location with a bunch of scruffy writer types in, in each scenario, at least for Rolling Stone and at least the way that, uh, I run a show in terms of the office and the way everybody, pretty much all their TV shows, everybody's just, it's, uh, it's not a particularly formal environment. Um, at, at, at the magazine, when we moved offices, we, uh, it was designed to be more like a newsroom. So it was one big floor. And so you, it felt communal in one way, but, but it also still felt, even though you were all doing something for the magazine, it felt like everyone was working individually and then it all fed into the magazine. I mean, we all liked each other. We all talked. We'd go to shows together and stuff. But it, but um, everyone was kind of doing their own thing. And then all those independent parts became the magazine. Whereas in a in a TV office, there's just one thing and you're all doing it. And that's the storyline that is the show. 
So, so we're sitting there at every point talking about the exact same story together, constantly going over the same outline or script together. Our editors are in our same, we've got this kind of just kind of fantastically crappy little bungalow type of place that we all are in. Um, and it's far from a studio lot. So there's no show business around. It's just, it's, it's just us. So the editors are coming in and saying like, can you look at something and you're going in the editing room. But so it's all, everyone's doing the exact same thing. Um, whereas at a magazine, they're doing 25 different things at once. I mean, the, the, the one, the one time it's the same is if you're on deadline for a script, we'll, we'll all break an, an episode together and then, but somebody's going to individually write it. So once that happens, they write an outline, we all give them notes. And then that person will go off and work usually from home. And in, you know, I always give everybody two weeks and in two weeks, come up with a draft of that. That's the only time you've got to, you feel more individual. But besides that, we're all just, there's, there's just the one goal. Um, and that's a really cool feeling, actually. That's, a, that's, that's one of the best things about TV. Yeah. And that collaborative, again, going back to how we started talking about team sports and being part of something bigger than yourself. I think that collaborative spirit can really bring out the best in people when they, you know, you have all those six or eight or 10 people working toward a common goal. Uh, sometimes there's strength in those numbers that can do something beyond what one individual individual could do, you know, off on their own. Yeah. And I, I, I think of it as like basketball, like a basketball team a lot because I was a basketball player, but uh, it's, you know, every once in a while you get somebody who's great at everything, but that's great. And there are a writer on your staff who's a superstar. But most people, there's there's kind of role players too. Like there's some people who are better at coming up with ideas in the room than they are on the page. And there's some people who are great on the page, but you really have to feed them the story so, and get them to understand it. And then they'll come through. Um, there's some people who can really line at it like crazy and give fantastic notes. So you kind of, um, and you also need, different personalities. We're coming up with all these stories about all these different characters. So I would never hire a bunch of people who think just like me, like, cause I know what I think. So I don't, I don't really need that perspective. I need, I need somebody else's perspective. That's going to tell me why I'm wrong or why, or open up my world in some way. So, so you're really filling it with like different types of people, different skill sets, And hopefully that's a, that's a wide enough net that it creates a, um, a group that can create a big, vast world that you're portraying and whatever your show is. So when you were at Rolling Stone, I'm, I'm certain that you were obviously inspired by, by music. Um, as you've transitioned to television, where do you find your inspiration now? Does it come in uh, things that you read, um, other television that you watch? Do you still take inspiration from music? How do you, how do you kind of uh, find that sweet spot, you know, within your inner self to become inspired and, and take that and churn it into something that's a statement about you. I think it's your, I think you're kind of always drawing from music. You're kind of always drawing from all sorts of different places. Music for me is still a huge one. Um, I tend to, when I'm thinking of a story, kind of think about the way it might sound. Um, not even saying like, Oh, these songs are going to be entered or something, but just, just the feeling it's more, uh, 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 but then, I mean, honestly, I take inspiration from kind of everywhere from, uh, you know, I read a fair amount. So novels I read, I mean, hopefully you're not stealing from them. Uh, it, it, it's usually, it's, it can be something that's totally different in topic than what you're doing. But if you read, if I read something good, if I, um, if I see something 
good on TV or in a movie, um, just the fact that there's something really good in the world is inspiring. So uh, even if it's a tragedy and you're writing a comedy, it, it, it still kind of helps. And um, and that's it. I, I, I don't know. Once you're on a show itself, um, you start to get to know that world. And so it's easier because your only job is to keep making that world better and more interesting. You know, like whenever I finish with Ozark and I turn my mind to whatever's going to be next, then it's going to be a little harder. Then it's going to be like, oh, wait, what do I think about things? What inspires me? Because now it's like honing in on what, what we're hopefully doing right in Ozark and, and just deepening that. So it's, it's easier to find inspiration because you know what you're supposed to be inspired for. It's the next thing when there is just blank that is a, that'll be slightly terrifying. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Speaking of Ozark, as you, um, you know, it's clearly proven a success and so has Criminal Minds and other things you've been involved in. As you've gotten more successful in this industry, how much uh, do you listen to outside noise? Do you try to just block all that out or do you, do you kind of uh, enjoy taking in some positive reviews from time to time knowing that um, your work is being, you know, well appreciated by people, uh, from all over the world, really. Um, I don't really read. I mean, I'll, I'll get stuff, stuff sent to me like, like from the Netflix people. And also I guess I'll read some, but I try not to read anything. Um, but, but you also, but you have a sense and you have a sense that if people like it or don't. And, um, and you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say like, it's great. I'm so happy that people like it, honestly. I mean, you're, we're making it for people to see. We want people to like it. We really like it, you know, and, and I sort of feel like the show so far has come out exactly the way I meant it to. So for better or worse, this is our best foot forward. And so we hope people, we hope people respond. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think you can do something and put it out in the public and pretend like you don't want people to, to like it. I think, um, but, uh, but I'm also not going to get too caught up in it. I would I'd never get caught up in specifics about it for sure. Um, and and now I kind of want to, I really like doing it. I kind of want to do it. I hope people like it. I want to enjoy doing it. And then, um, and then I want to go home. <laughs> that's, that's honest. I mean, I appreciate that. What, what do you think um, has been the biggest piece of magazine writing that you've taken to television writing that's helped you be successful? Um, good question. Um, well, this is, uh, I can hit a deadline, but I think that as much as anything is, is, is like, I've, I've never missed a deadline in my life. So I was just used to that. Um, but, but in terms of the actual work itself, you know, I think, I think I realized early on in magazines that you couldn't just talk about the people you needed to show them. You needed to sort of like let them walk around in the world a little bit in the magazine pieces. And so, um, and, and that is really equates almost directly to, to, to TV writing and screenwriting, you know, you're trying to show, you're trying not to tell. And so I think having understood that in magazines, it made the leap into, um, into TV writing a lot easier. I actually, write my TV scripts. Like I used to write my, my, my magazine long, like cover stories, like where I would always come home and, and I'd have a big pad of paper and I'd just start listing 
all the thematically what I thought that it was supposed to be. And then I'd start listing the scenes that I thought I had and then pieces of dialogue that I knew or, or, or quotes that I knew I had. And, and I'd, I'd write it all on one big pad of paper and in a tiny little handwriting so I could, looks like a serial killer, but because it was only so it could all fit on one page so I could see it in one spot. And so when I first started doing, um, when I first started doing TV writing, every time I'd get stuck, I'd be typing on my computer and I'd get stuck and I'd grab a pad of paper and I'd lay down on the floor and I'd do that exercise just about whatever, just the scene I was writing. I'm like, okay, what's this scene about? Where does it move? Like, like what are some things that you, you know you want to be said? Um, and I'd solve my problem really quickly every single time. And it would be this crazy thing with pieces of dialogue and arrows pointing here and there and all this stuff. But, um, but it, it kept solving the problem. And so pretty soon during my first year on Chicago Hope, I was just like, well, why don't I just do this from the start? So I do that with every scene I write. And then the second I'm done with it, I immediately type it in the computer, mostly because I probably won't be able to read my writing an hour later. Um, but I do I do that every single time. And it totally comes from the way I would attack a magazine piece. That's so funny, that visual of the, the piece of paper that looks like a serial killer. Because I'm, I'm personally kind of the opposite. I'll get a legal pad out. And I'll write like notes obnoxiously big to the point where it looks like a five-year-old did it and I'm just wasting paper, but it's just kind of the way my brain like makes sense of it. And you're kind of doing it kind of the same exercise, but in a little different manner. That's just, that's funny to me. Yeah. It's however it gets you to visualize it. Right. I mean, I'll think about things in magazines. I would do it especially, but um, I do it in TV a little bit too in shapes. And it's weird because I'm not, I was never a math whiz by any means. And I don't, but like for whatever reason, I could just see the flow of a piece in 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 the in the way that the sections might break down, and and it'll be the same way in a script sometimes. And I'll literally like draw a diagram. Sometimes on my crazy little pads of paper where I want to see everything, I'll like draw <laughs> draw diagrams too. It just makes no sense if you if you picked it up and uh, didn't know what it was, you'd never be able to translate anything. <laughs> this is good stuff. Um, I got two more, and then I'll get you out of here. Um, okay. One, I really wanted to ask you about um, the state of journalism today. And I know that now you're in TV now, but to what extent have you continued to follow journalism, specifically magazines? And and where do you th- what do you think about where it's evolved since you got out of that racket? It's evolved into a hard way to a hard place to make a living. I mean, right, right. I've got I've got a good friend. Um, who I, I used to work with at Rolling Stone. Like we wrote a couple year end issues together and then he left and went to Newsweek and then to Entertainment Weekly. And then he left, uh, he left EW and moved to Montana and he wrote two YA novels that both came out and did pretty well. And then just took another job back in journalism. And he described it to me as getting on the last helicopter back into Saigon. But um, it, I, I, it's, a, it's weird. Another, another friend of mine that I mentioned before Every single time he re-ups with GQ, he, he's like, well, I think this is probably going to be my last contract, so I, might, I better take it. I don't know. I mean, I grew up with my favorite things in the world were records and magazines and and books and all the things that I love are disappearing. Uh, I, I think there's such a need for journalism. And there's, I mean, obviously, daily journalism I think I think the world today is 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 proving how much we we need people that are really on top of things, but also, um, long form journalism. And I think, uh, there's some places that are doing it. It's just, uh, 
it, it's it's hard to monetize it. So you're not going to get the best people doing it automatically, or people are going to get scared off on it. So it worries me because I think it it's, it has such value, and people want those stories. Uh, you know, so you know, I I, I want to figure out how people can get paid to do them. Yeah, I've even started to see this thing in the last couple of years where some talented writers have started to do long form basically on their own operating, you know, they have a blog or a website and they're basically operating as a one man band, probably with a minimal amount of advertising to help pay their bills. But if you're a, a reader of that person and you've developed an affinity for what they, what they write and how they do it and what they've researched, it's kind of like at a certain point, if, if they leave a publication, I'd almost be uh, prone to want to follow the writer more than stay with the publication because I believe in, in their work. And so I think that's, maybe one possible outlet, but again, uh, can you monetize it in the long run? I, I just don't know if it's sustainable for them. Yeah, that's the worry. And also then, you know, those are people who have established themselves someplace and so you're able to follow them. And if not, it's like, I mean, in one way it's great because anybody can do it. So you can try to establish it yourself. And, you know, it's like the, all the YouTubers, my, my daughters love who, you know, you can just do that. But, um, you know, and, and as a journalist, but at, at the same time, it's awfully, it's awfully tough to try to get a following just out of thin air, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I, I it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I feel lucky to have, uh, sort of made the transition when I did just on, on that level. So that these aren't stresses, day-to-day stresses, and they're more just worries of mine as a fan rather than as the person with two kids. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so back to television, we are, um, whether you like it or not, we're in a golden era, I believe, of television in the last decade. You know, you've got uh, Mad Men and The Sopranos and all your shows, Ozark, <laughs> Climbing the Ranks. Do you, do you ever stop and kind of uh, smell the roses and appreciate that you are um, you know, kind of center field at Yankee Stadium in what is considered a golden age of TV? Do you ever kind of almost pinch yourself and say, how did I get here? I feel really lucky. So, um, so in a way, yes, I don't, you know, I, I probably don't, I actually, I think it's good that I don't think, I don't think about the other enough because you can get very self-satisfied. I know this, I, I know last year we were nominated for an Emmy last year and, uh, and my wife and I went and I didn't know if it'd be just a big pain or not. And, um, but we actually like, I felt it a little bit there. I'm like, Oh wow, we're here at the Emmys and we were nominated. That's kind of cool. Like let's take a split second and at least be appreciative of that. Um, but, but normally I still kind of think about it. Like I, like I said, when I first moved to New York and, and was lucky enough to get my job at Rolling Stone. But at the time I was just like, well, you know, I hope somebody pays me to do this in some way. And, um, I still just very feel really thankful that I'm getting to do the work. And uh, I mean, I feel extra thankful that people seem to like it, but, um, but really I just, I just, um, I'm so happy to get to play. Yeah. It's like uh, back to, you said it, I didn't, but if you're able to go through your life uh, making all your money by being paid to write, you've gotten away with something. Um, it's kind of like, we'll have to put that on your tombstone. You know, here lies Chris Mundy, uh, dot, dot, dot. He was paid to write for a living. You know, that's a p- pretty good way to go. I, I would take it. Trust me. <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been fun, insightful. Um, 
I know you're you're busy. You got some more Ozark to to figure out for your devoted cast of viewers. But um, this has been really cool, and I appreciate your time. And I think there's a lot in here, both um, for somebody who's aspiring to write either in journalism or for TV or whatever. I kind of think at the heart of your message, it is. Um, it's just right for what, whatever it is that you want to write, write and do it. If you can get paid to do it all the better. That, that, that works for me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but this has been super fun. So yeah, it's so my pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait for the, uh, maybe you need to be the writers to do a, a 10 part documentary on the Knicks teams of the 1990s and how they were close, but no cigar. <laughs> oh, this ends in heartbreak. I don't even. I got my. I got my nephew to, to be a Knicks fan when he was he was little. I just bought him all sorts of Nick gear, like from the very beginning. And now I feel like I, I sent him down the worst path. But we'll come back. <laughs> we'll get, we'll get, we'll get, you know, you got you got to think the allure of New York and Madison Square Garden. I mean, they can't be down forever. At some point, the switch will have to flip, right? Exactly. Or at least maybe Dolan will sell the team, and everything will. The, the, the skies will, the skies will open and the sun will come out. <laughs> That's good. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely.